Hello, listeners. It's Lawrence Coletti, executive producer of Legal Talk Network. I want to tell you about one of our more hilarious yet still very informative podcasts called Thinking Like a Lawyer. Twice a month, hosts Ellie Mastal and Joe Patrice from Above the Law dive into what it's like to see the world from a lawyer's perspective, meaning they jabber on about politics, current events, this, that, and the other, sometimes with the guest and sometimes not. But if you're looking for a filterless podcast, check it out. Thinking Like a Lawyer on our website at LegalTalkNetwork.com, in iTunes, or on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to the show. You're listening to the Legal Talk Network. Hello, I'm Bob Ambrogi. And I'm Monica Bay. We've been writing about law and technology for more than 30 years. That's right. During that time, we've witnessed many changes and innovations. Technology is improving the practice of law, helping lawyers deliver their services faster and cheaper. Which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore the new legal technology and the people behind the tech here on Law Technology Now. Hi, I'm Monica Bay, and welcome to Law Technology Now. We have a terrific guest today, Chris Bentley, and he's with Ryerson University. I'm going to turn the mic over to Chris, uh, who has a very interesting background, not only in academia, but also in politics. Hi, Monica. Delighted to join you today. Great opportunity. Um, You know, I'm really privileged to be the now managing director of two programs here at Ryerson, the Law Practice Program, a licensing program for lawyers, and the Legal Innovation Zone, uh, which will be the focus, I know, of today's discussion. Uh, I've had an interesting journey to get here. Uh, I was, uh, when I was in politics, so you were asking about that, I was in politics in Ontario for 10 years cabinet minister every year from 2003 to 2013, including four years as the attorney general. But I had lots of occasion to go to uh, schools, speak to uh, groups of students. And one day I found myself at a grade five class in my riding of London West. And I was asking the students, well, you know, what do you want to do when you finish school, uh, when you leave school? And they had the usual collection of answers um, doctor, wanted to go into business like my mom, engineer, nurse, teacher, none of them said lawyer. Uh, and then one young lad looked up at me and he said, now, when you were our age, what did you want to be? And I, I said, well, when I was your age, I wanted to be a star hockey player for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And a few of them cheered, and a few of them might not have cheered. And then I delivered what I thought was the winning line. I said, now that was a time when the Leafs were actually winning the Stanley Cup. And without missing a beat, this youngster looked at me and he said, boy, you must be prehistoric. (laughs) The Leafs haven't won the Stanley Cup in Um, some period of time, actually since 1967. 
But when I realized that my dream of playing professional hockey was um, little more than a dream, uh, I decided I wanted to go into politics. It's what I wanted to do, uh, to help people, to change the world. I realized pretty quickly I wasn't going to get elected out of high school, so I thought I'd become a lawyer, advocate for people one at a time. I did that for 23 years until early January of 2002. I decided, uh, well, if I was ever going to do this uh, political thing, I'd, I'd better do something about it. Spoke to a couple of friends of mine, had a, a little pub called the Barking Frog at 2.30 in the afternoon, told them what I was planning. They promptly fell off their bar stools. When they got back on, um, we established a route. I knocked on doors for 14 months. I got elected and spent 10 glorious years in politics. I enjoyed every minute of it. The ability to make change, the ability to uh, help people, the ability to drive initiatives uh, was unlike anything I'd ever experienced. And it was during my time in politics that I actually met the uh, president of Ryerson University, who happened to be the guy who encouraged me to come to Ryerson after I left politics, and his name uh, is Sheldon Levy. And, and I'll just tell you the story about how I met him. He came in to see me. I became the Minister of Training Colleges and Universities responsible for university funding shortly after he became the president of Ryerson, and he came in with you know, the introductory comments and a, and a list of wishes. One of his uh, list of wishes was that Ryerson be given some provincial funding to improve their library space. And the reason was that by the accepted metrics, they had the worst library space per student of any university in Canada. Uh, so we had that discussion. Uh, it turned out several years later, we had managed to get them a significant amount of money and they've built a fantastic new learning center. But that fall, about three months later, my youngest was starting at Ryerson uh, in a filmmaking course. And after the first week, I asked her how it was going. And she said, uh, well, you know, it's going really well, Dad, but uh, you've got to do something about their library. You've got to get them more money because they have the worst library space per student in Canada. I laughed, immediately picked up the phone, and said to the president, Sheldon, I said, okay, Sheldon, you just got to leave my kids out of the conversation. And from that point on, we had a great, a great relationship. And so when I decided to leave politics, he called me up and he said, well, why don't you, uh, why don't you come to Ryerson? And I said, okay, I, I taught part-time for 10 years while I was practicing. What am I going to do? Why should I go? He said, well, do whatever you want. Um, the Law Society of Upper Canada, our regulator, like the State Bar Association, is proposing a new way that lawyers get licensed after they leave law school. Traditionally, up here, you have to article for 10 months, working with a lawyer, and then write some exams. And this was a new, innovative approach. Uh, they're looking for proposals. Why don't we write one? I said, well, we don't have a law school. He said, uh, yeah, but we're innovative. We're entrepreneurial. Let's do this. You write it. I wrote it. We got it. Uh, and we started setting that up. And it was while we were setting that up that they sat me in the former Google offices 
where Ryerson had developed a business incubator, a university-based business incubator that was recognized last year as number one in North America, number three in the world, university-based business incubator. And I walked out one day and I said to the executive director of that, I said, uh, so how many of these businesses are doing something in the law? And she said, none. And I said, ah, well, and there were 80 businesses at the time. So I went to the president. I said, Sheldon, you need a legal innovation zone. And he said, what's a legal innovation zone? And then I did what I might have done from time to time. I'm sure never as a lawyer, but yes, from time to time as a politician, when I was asked a very challenging question, to which I had no idea what the answer was. And I said, well, a legal innovation zone, of course, it is, a, and that's uh, why you need one. <laughs> and he laughed, and he said, go ahead. What year was this? That was two and a half years ago. Okay. And we became the first business incubator dedicated to legal tech in Canada, and one of the first, that we haven't found another one, dedicated to legal tech anywhere. I want to interrupt you for a second because I've got some questions about part of, of what you were uh, talking about. Um, I spoke for too long, but I thought I'd give you the overview. No, you're you're totally fine. It's not bad at all. But when I was up there, because you were generous enough to invite me to a presentation with you, um, I had a fantastic breakfast with one of my colleagues and friends who's up there, and I was really surprised about how long it takes students to actually get their ticket. You know, I got my ticket. I went to University of San Francisco, and I was in the night thing, so I was already having an extra year because that's a four-year rather than a three-year. And basically, after you get through, you take the exams, and you're either in or you have to take it again, and you have to take it again, blah, blah, blah. But I was surprised at how she was telling me that a lot of people aren't even bothering to get their ticket because it's especially if they're interested in tech because it's such a long process to be able to actually get your ticket do you see that as a good thing uh, do you see it as a bad thing or it's probably in the middle somewhere there do you think that will change because it seems like it really becomes onerous to some of the folks especially on, you know, if they're putting themselves through school. So tell me about that for the Americans who don't know how this works. You make a very important point, Monica, and let me preface it by saying that uh, people are still buzzing about the visit that you made on International Women's Day. Oh, thank to you. To speak about uh, the legal tech journey uh, that you have witnessed and about your role in that journey and uh, prodding it, encouraging it, reporting on it. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. The point you make about the length of time it takes people to qualify as lawyers and the attendant cost is extremely important. And I would say two things about that. Up here, it takes a long time to qualify to become a lawyer. Um, before you get into an Ontario or Canadian law school, you often require four years of undergrad. So four years of undergrad university plus three years of law school. Yeah, mo in most schools that that's typical. You you go through yep. your first and and for me I went to grad school and then I finally went to law school. So I mean I was living in <laughs> academia for a long time. But what bothers me and I am interrupting you. I'll let you get right back to it. But what really bothered me is I put myself through 
all but two years of all my education, and I was broke, 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 broke. Right. What got me interested in this is how does that impact, and is it de facto that it's by nature um, it's going to make it so that folks who have more money and can do it better? I mean, that I'm always interested in that and how they get around that. How do they make sure everybody can get in? Yeah, and, and I'll just add that in Ontario, in Canada, we have an additional year after leaving law school, which has traditionally yeah. been called articling. You have to work with a lawyer, uh, and we have the new uh, alternative to that, the uh, law practice program, which is four months training followed by four months of a work placement. But it's still better part of an additional year before you can uh, get licensed and go out on your own and practice as a lawyer. It is a long haul. The cost, of course, uh, both in terms of the actual cost, tuition and living, and then the opportunity cost of what you're not earning doing something else, rather significant, and I suspect a big barrier to others. Do I see that part of it changing? Not that part of it. Um, I, I think if left to their own devices, there seem to be relatively little incentive up here for uh, the providers of legal education, the law schools, to change either the time or the cost of what they provide. I think more likely the bigger change is what they're actually teaching and the degree to which they either voluntarily or more likely are required to incorporate technology, the importance of technology, different business approaches like lean and design thinking and analytics into the regular structure of law school. And I see them being required to do that because the people who will hire their graduates are going to be looking for it. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry to go into that so much, Kai, because I want you to tell us more. What I really want people to know about is, is what you're doing at the uh, legal innovation zone, which I was just blown away with. And I just last week published an article by one of the folks that were there. I do a thing called Startup Snapshot for Codex. And I was mesmerized with what they were doing. I don't know how to pronounce his name. Is it Paola Tonelli? Help me with that. And Darlene? Yeah. Paolo Tonelli. Paolo Tonelli. Yeah. Paolo. It's a great story. So anyway, I'm going to stop interrupting you and tell us more about it. And what he's doing, but they should read your your article. No, that's okay. Go ahead. Um, but what they're doing uh, is they have both uh, developed this idea for providing real-time, up-to-date information on the status of laws and regulations. So you don't have to go to the books. You don't have to do the extended search through the net to find out whether a law has been amended or whether there is a proposed amendment or a regulation is current or not. You will get that real-time information through his service, and you'll be able to curate those services so you actually get uh, push reminders if, for example, you're interested in employment law, there are a number of statutes you would be interested in monitoring, and a legislature proposes a change to a regulation or um, the legislation, you would get a push reminder or notification that that is actually happening. And he's doing this by programming himself, and he's programmed a number of bots to update the information automatically. 
Uh, in fact, he he often works all night because they have a young family. <laughs> he works all yeah. night. I come in early in the morning. I now say good morning to Paolo, and I say good morning to the bots. Now, just in case we have people who aren't as savvy about this as most of the folks who are doing it, what is a bot for someone who might not know what that is? <laughs> well, it's essentially the, it, it's the computer that is um, a robot that is uh, generating, ah, uh, using okay. data, generating information automatically. And once it is appropriately programmed, it can do its work, but it doesn't require intervention by the operator, doesn't require breaks, doesn't want a day off, uh, doesn't get (laughs) sick, tends not to complain, although I'm sure from time to time they get worn out. (laughs) So is that artificial intelligence? Yeah, he's using uh, forms of that, yes. Uh, I mean, one of the things I... I will confess to your audience right away is that it is a bit of a a miracle and a source of mirth uh, around our household. The fact that I am the uh, managing director of the Legal Innovation Zone, because my wife and kids will know that uh, in our household, I am the least tech savvy. (laughs) But as I often say to people, you don't have to be Bill Gates you don't have to have a job seeing knowledge of technology. What you need to know is that there is what they've done and the importance of it. And attach yourself to the people who are experts. Start to understand the power of what technology can do and how it can affect the way you deal with the consumers, individuals, or businesses that you want to serve. Uh, and that's the message. And I can deliver that message very effectively because I rarely get lost in the technology. Well, I'm in the same situation because, you know, I've always been focused on what does it do? What is the community? How is this changing? How is it making better? But, you know, I used to annoy when I was at ALM and I had to do so many meetings with the folks who were doing developments. I'm not under the hood. And, oh, my God, there would be some times where they would go into these just deep, deep, deep things. And I'm sitting there going, how long is this going to be? And how can I get out of it? Because, you know, exactly what you said, we don't need to know how to do it. What we need to know is what does it do? What does it solve? Who does it help? And, you know, it's, I absolutely love what these folks are doing, but I couldn't do it myself if my life depended on it. So we're in the same camp on that. And and that's a point we need to keep making because when, especially with rooms full of lawyers, I find when, when people start talking technology, it is so divorced from what many lawyers know, uh, what their background is. It can be very intimidating. Oh, yeah. It's hard to find the entry point for the average, not terribly tech-savvy lawyer. And it's even harder for them to understand how something that has an application in a different field, a non-law field, could possibly be relevant to their special and particular uh, consumers. So I think it's, it's always helpful when those who've been in the field, such as yourself, can take the complicated and make it digestible for lawyers, and so they can feel comfortable getting started. And then once they're started, of course, they'll have the tenacity that they bring to everything and consume with great rapidity. And we have to remember, the baby boomers are now retiring. And, you know, I made my first story 
at ALM on a typewriter. You know, it's it's. <laughs> I was there for thirty years. I've always been absolutely just completely interested in change management. I've loved that. I always wanted to have the newest toy, but. I wanted it to be, you know, that's why I'm an Apple girl, because it's pretty much, yep. you don't have to have a PhD in some of this stuff <laughs> to get it. But it's so important to do it. And what fascinates me all the time is the things that we just adopt really fast and the ones that take forever and they last five minutes. But it's just that whole shifting. I mean, if you think about it, how we bank I mean, when I was a young girl, you'd go to the bank from 10 in the morning till three in the afternoon and you'd have to put in your thing. Now you do it on your phone. I mean, the phone, the the phone thing that's happened, but we could go into this forever and I want to get back to you. Tell us about the Ontario Access for Justice Challenge. What is that? So why don't I, before I get to that, why don't I just step back a second and and talk about the zone and what it does, if that's... Please um, do, yeah. If that will fit. So I said to the president, we need this legal innovation zone, and we really set it up for one key purpose. And that purpose is a continuation of what I worked on as a lawyer, what I worked on in government, and what I'm interested in now. Making sure people who need legal assistance and advice can get what they need when they need it, in the way they need it, at a price they can afford. And those are the goals of the Legal Innovation Zone. We have three key lines of business, if you will. One is to support entrepreneurs, startups. They make an application. They want to do something smarter, faster, better in the law. They make the pitch to us. They don't have to have an established business, but although we took part-time enterprises when we started, we now only take those who are actually committed full-time to the enterprise. We provide them with the usual co-working space, the Wi-Fi, the access to mentors, the access to business both law and non-law support that you need, the uh, communications, the networking, uh, and the like. We make introductions to the legal community, and they benefit not only from the legal startup community here, but from the broader business startup community that Ryerson has developed. Uh, It is quite an ecosystem that's been developed here. So that's number one. We have 17 full-time companies uh, and 35-plus entrepreneurs. The second uh, line of business is to work with organizations for profit. We've got a relationship with Osler's Law Firm uh, or a government not-for-profit to help them bring their innovation agenda to life. So on, a, on an ongoing or on a project basis, we can help them shape their innovation agenda and just more importantly, uh, to actually bring it to life. Ryerson's done this in the non-law areas, and we are bringing this to the law area. And then the third is what I call the stir the pot area, and I love this. We notionally call it modernizing the justice system, developing a 21st century justice system, but really it is finding ways of forcing change. Those are our, our three main areas. We do lots of speaking, so invite great speakers, yourself, uh, to come and give a perspective on law, technology, life, uh, to broaden the thinking. Uh, We do internal speaking projects. We have been 
around the world in a number of places, either speaking at or attending conferences. So try and develop a community of change interested in bringing better, faster to consumers of legal advice and information. That in a broad relief is what we do here at the Legal Innovation Zone. Now, you asked me about the access to justice challenge. So uh, the mm -hmm. government of Ontario, through the Ministry of the Attorney General, was interested in our startup community here, and, and they were interested in improving access to justice, of course, as everybody is. And they said, well, could you run a challenge for us? Uh, we said, sure. So they provided some funding to run it and $50,000 in seed money for the top three uh, initiatives. So we put out an application uh, process. We had 30 applicants. We had 10 that we allowed to make pitches. The top six came into the zone for four months to further work on and develop their idea. They made a pitch to a panel and the top three were chosen. Paolo was one of the three uh, finalists, and oh. they all shared seed money. Uh, and the ministry really liked it, and now they're looking to build on that and do something, I think, with even more impact. And speaking of building on it, when you bring the folks into it and they, they are working with you in that time, do you guys have a piece of the final action, like when they go live is, I mean, is this a way that you can build the program? How does that work? Yeah, so they, we don't. We don't take a piece. Really? How come? Well, Ryerson's culture has been that they, it is a university there. They want to uh -huh. encourage and teach innovative and entrepreneurial thinking. They have a spin-off from their business incubator called Ryerson Futures, which once you graduate from the business incubator, you can choose to go to Ryerson Futures, which helps you with advanced advice, support, funding, and they will take mm -hmm. a very small piece for that. We decided from the beginning, no, um, our business is encouraging change that will benefit the end consumers of legal advice and information. Our business is encouraging a community of those who are building jobs and wealth by uh, doing things or looking at doing things differently. Our business is strengthening legal structures by making them work better for those who are supposed to serve. But we're not in the business of taking pieces of the action. That's just not what we're doing. There are others who will do that and bring great advice, and that's fine. That's what they can do. But we're not doing that. They get free space here. In the bigger business incubator that Ryerson has, they, they charge uh, a few hundred dollars a month after a period of four to six months. We haven't started doing that. What we're trying to do to advance the Ryerson mission, the broader social mission, is to generate that momentum of change in law. And we are running out of time. I could talk to you forever, but... What haven't I asked you that you wanted to talk about? And then afterwards, I want to make sure that you can tell us if for folks who are listening, how they can reach out to you. So those are your last two questions. Absolutely. So this is, let me make the point that we have had wonderful discussions with people in uh, at Duke, Ukraine, London, England, 
Vancouver, Colorado, uh, Stanford. This is not simply an Ontario thing. Innovation can happen anywhere. And once it happens somewhere, it can be imported anywhere else. It's one of the things I tell people here, that if we don't innovate, somebody else is going to. So if you want the jobs and investment here, get going. But I say to the people that we've spoken to, Denmark, um, we'll give them advice. We give them support. We're happy to collaborate on projects. Uh, it is an enormously exciting time, and the broader community, I think, needs to find ways to support each other, learn from each other, so we're not repeating the same mistakes, and we're building something that is uh, socially beneficial. So if there are some of your listeners who haven't been in contact with us, gosh, by all means, you know, find us on the website, uh, the Legal Innovation Zone at Ryerson, or email me at chris.bentley at ryerson.ca. My director, Hirsch Perlis, as well. Uh, he's a non-lawyer, great entrepreneur and innovator. And you say, why have a non-lawyer as the head of a legal innovation zone? And I, I chuckled when I answered that question. I said, well, I'm a lawyer. I know lots of lawyers. I need somebody who's going to ask the questions that I'm not thinking of. I need somebody who's been in business who sees it from a different perspective. So we work very well together, and we're more than happy to have conversations with people who are interested. Chris Bentley, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to spend this time with you, and the stuff we're talking about is really important, and I'm so glad you brought up so much of that. I'm going to give you the last word here, and thank you again. Thank you very much, Monica, for the opportunity, more importantly, for your leadership, your determination to share information, your encouragement. We're looking forward to your next visit to Ontario, Canada, in Toronto, and maybe it'll even be when the Yankees are playing the Blue Jays. Bye -bye. Ooh, I'm all for that. Thank you all, and we'll see you in the next edition of Law Technology Now. like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.